0: So, welcome, guys. It's great to be here with you this morning um, in what is sure to be in a roller coaster of a ride here. Um, so, buckle up. Uh, there's, uh, this morning is going to be a little bit of, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And uh, admittedly, the first half of uh, the talk today is going to be a little bit like picking up breadcrumbs before we come to the full loaf nuggets in the back half of the sermon. So um, buckle up, and, and uh, it's going to be great. This is going to be a, a really fun uh, passage to preach. Uh, you probably know it, uh, know it well, if you've been in the Christian church for a while, or perhaps this is your first time coming to it. And so um, it's my privilege to kind of introduce it to you for the first time. So um, John chapter 8, let me get there. And when we get there... Um, today, this passage, you know, in, in modern translations, it's actually sectioned off from the rest of John. You'll probably notice that um, right at the beginning when we come to it. If you, when you open up like in that pew Bible, for example, right in front of you, when we get to John chapter 8, there's a line that goes through it. A line, a line that goes through it, and it says, the earliest MSS, that stands for manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Yikes. Okay, so this is part of that work that we have to do here when it comes to this passage. And it's actually really fun work that we get to do together because um, it seems that the translators here have been very careful to let any reader know, to let us know that the oldest copies of John that we have actually don't include this, what is, you call it a story, you could call it a pericope. They do not include this pericope in the work of John. And if you're anything like me, that makes you squirm a bit. Like, why not? What's going on here? And let me tell you, it might be even worse than you think it is. Like, buckle up, Okay. I'm gonna read a couple of things. Uh, I tried, uh, typically in my sermon study, I like to do a lot of work on a text, and, and then I'll read one or two commentaries. These are kind of academics that study the Bible and, and cultural history that, of the times that the Bible was written in, and just try to see if I'm on track or not. And this week I read this, this first little bracketed statement here, and I said, let's just go really wide on the commentaries. I wanted to pull a lot of thoughts together and just condense them down for you guys. And a couple of quotes here. So I got a lot of different people um, assessing this bracket statement at the beginning and kind of telling us why and, and, and what is going on with this text, okay? So one of these historic theologians writes this. This story is not at all likely to have been in the original gospel of John. Or another goes like this. This pericope was almost certainly not in the original version of John. Another contends, this is a later insertion for reasons that are massive, convincing, and obvious. Another says, the evidence for the the non-Johannine origin for this is overwhelming and conclusive. Another, it's impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of John's gospel. Another put put it like this, this passage is completely absent from all pre-5th century manuscripts, including Papyrus 66, which is a near-complete copy of John's gospel, written around 200 AD, they think, but discovered in 1952. Also, it's not in Papyrus 75, which contains text from, like, Luke 3 through the end of Luke, and then into John through John 15. It's not in there. That was written around 200 AD as well, uh, copied in 200 AD as well, discovered in 1937. It's not in Codex Sinaticus, uh, this this uh, theologian wants to point out, which is the complete New Testament, dated somewhere around 350 AD, discovered in 1844, and it's not in Codex Vaticanus, which contains most all of the Greek New Testament, also dated somewhere around 350 and discovered in 1475 and this is the last one i promise Uh, another commentator this one from 1891 i wanted to find the oldest commentary i could uh, from the modern commentary era Uh, this one from 1891 puts it like this prudential reasons cannot explain the omission of this paragraph in more than a limited number of cases which is 1891 speak for we don't know where this came from all right so this is what we're coming into today and you may not have expected to dive into Um, this kind of old old manuscript evaluation this morning as you walked into church, but welcome. We're going to spend a little bit of time here before actually looking at this text. Um, We we really want to wrestle with it because if you're anything like me, um, you're like, wait, what? (laughs) What? Like, hold, hold on a second here. If the general consensus from accredited, intelligent, and trustworthy minds is that John didn't write this at all, then why is it here? Why is it preserved in this? Like, honestly, if you're anything like me, that's your question. You can ask Dave. I said something very similar to him at the beginning of the week. Why is this here? This might actually spark bigger questions for you that go like this. Um, are there other parts of the Bible that are like this? Are there parts in the scriptures that we don't know about that are like this as well? Can we even trust the things that we read in this book are actually part of the original works and the, uh, the intended words of The authors? Or if people come in on the back end and just added and subtracted a bunch of stuff according to whatever motives they had and wanted to control the narrative, you know, control the narrative, control the people kind of thing. Like, can we trust this? These are big questions. These are really important questions. And these are questions that are really important for us to really roll up our sleeves and handle because um, as a church uh, we really exist to help equip um, the saints this is part of our job is to equip the saints for ministry and that looks like being able to have confidence in the word of God in a culture that is typically constructing arguments to tear it down and, and so that's really what we we're, we're We're gonna spend a little bit of time doing this morning before going into the text. Because this is, there's a long history of things, errors kind of making it into the New Testament, I'll put it like that. And how do we square with these? Um, If you're a footnote reader, I realize that many of us probably are not footnote readers in the Bible. I'm a footnote reader. Um, but you, if you're a footnote reader, you may have noticed notes in your Bible which speak to these kind of presumed manuscript differences. And what are we supposed to do with that? How could this be? If this is the Word of God, should there be any errors in it? Shouldn't it come to us? Like, how, What's going on? Well, the, the big thing that's going on is the printing press didn't come around until 1440. And so we couldn't do this with the scriptures for 1,400 years with the New Testament, even longer for the Old Testament. We couldn't get these things flying off the printing press. They had to be manually copied, manually transmitted from one generation to the next. And humans are humans. And because humans are humans, they can't copy things 100%, right? They can't do it 100% precisely. I mean, think about it. Manuscript transmission was with a quill, Done either by daylight or candlelight, no electricity back then. And so a host of mistakes could be made. Letters could get miscopied. Words could get misread and miscopied. Entire lines of text could accidentally get duplicated or, or dropped all together. Margin notes from the preacher might accidentally get copied into the scriptures in some instances. Yikes. There could have been damage to the scroll in some way. So a scribe was kind of left to fill in a gap here there. I, mean, I only preach once a month. You can't, I spill coffee on my Bible so often. So often. There was often a mass manuscript copying where one scribe would read the text and 10 or so others would be writing it down. And maybe a scribe misheard a word. Maybe a a, a scribe mispronounced a word. So all 10 of them wrote it down wrong. There's a lot, there's a hundred little things that can go wrong in manuscript transmission, and they did. It's quite evident as we examine all of the manuscripts from history, all ancient manuscripts, not just biblical manuscripts, suffer errors like these. So if you think of like all the, the works of, of Plato, all the works of Socrates, all the works of Aristotle, even historical works that were penned, there is traditions of those manuscripts where they have to look at the different manuscripts and try to get down to the bottom of what was said. At the end of the day, it's interesting how no one's doubting that this is what Plato actually wrote. Isn't that interesting? Even though there's far more manuscripts of the New Testament (laughs) and there's less of a gap between when the original was wrote and when we'd start discovering fragments and full copies. But one of the unique contributions you could say of Protestant Christianity is this. We're not afraid of this. In fact, we love talking about this. We love talking about that there's all these different manuscripts. A lot of them contain errors and and disagree with one another. But we're not scared to kind of roll up our sleeves and deal with it. So this has actually happened for about 500 years now. There have been thousands of Protestant Christians who have devoted their lives, their, their life's work, to rolling up their sleeves evaluating these manuscripts, evaluating these uh, fragments, and trying to get down to the bottom of what actually was the original text. They've devoted their life's work to it, and and this has really come to be, this field of study has come to be called textual criticism. Textual criticism. Now, Now, we didn't probably didn't expect to be launched into this lecture here, but but if we really are going to continue into the same vein, we, we really don't want to miss this opportunity to be able to talk about this, because this is such a big question, and, and I've seen it cause a lot of doubts and questions in people's minds as they come to the scriptures, and, and there's so many assaults kind of on just scripture generally. Can we trust this is what's in here actually, what the authors intended there to be in there, how do we know that, and so we don't want to miss the opportunity to dive down a little bit and examine that together so that you can really walk away with a few arguments, hopefully, or a few da- data points here, where that you can kind of grab onto, to say, oh no, these are the scriptures, and we can trust with a really high degree of confidence that they do uh, actually reflect what the original authors wrote Okay? Um, and then we're going to deal with our passage a bit, which kind of presents its own kind of example and, and circumstance in that. Um, because an argument that you'll hear, and I've heard plenty, is that manuscript transmission throughout the centuries is actually one big game of telephone. Have you heard this? Oh, it's just a big game of telephone. But copying manuscripts was nowhere close to a game of telephone at all. Manuscript transmission was the job of individuals throughout it. Like, it was their day job. They woke up, lived, breathed, ate, and slept, copying words from one piece of paper to another. It's it's insane. These were people's jobs. They, They had stringent standards and methods of copies. They would check their copies against the thing they translated against, and they would check their copies against other previous manuscripts. There was a high degree of, of scrutiny that was put on the manuscript transmission throughout history, but nevertheless, errors still took place. Errors still made it through, and, and quite honestly, if you do look through, there are a great number of errors here. So what are we to do? What are we to do? And this is what manual trans, or, or, um textual criticism is concerned with. Here's an analogy. Um, say you have an Aunt Sally. Anybody here have actually an Aunt Sally? I just want to know that. Yeah, there's an Aunt Sally. Oh, right. Oh, two Aunt Sallys. Great. It's perfect. So say you have an Aunt Sally who makes an incredible pie. Comes with a similarly, uh, a similarly incredible a complex recipe, okay? That she gave to a friend at one point in her life, and that friend loved it so much that she copied it and gave it to a couple of her friends, and those friends copied it and gave it to a couple of their friends. And, and before long, we don't even know how many of these copies of this recipe are out there, but this pie is just so good that it was copied down, the recipe was copied down and sent out to it. so many, so many, so many different people. Now say your Aunt Sally dies. She passed away. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to look right at you because you actually have an Aunt Sally. <laughs> Sorry, Kyler. Um, Say your Aunt Sally passes, okay? And you really want to get that recipe. You really want to get that recipe. But you can't find it among her belongings at all. So you ask her friends, and and you ask her friends, friends, who'd you copy down and give it to? And and can they please take a photo of it and send it my way? Uh, And so you work hard and ask a lot of people to give you this recipe, and, and you get 26 copies back. 26 copies come back in, and as you spread them on the table, you immediately notice differences. And now 23 of the copies are virtually the same, except for some misspelled words, maybe some different abbreviations that litter throughout the text. And of the remaining three, however, uh, let's say one lists the ingredients in a different order. Um, Another has two phrases that are inverted. One says mix, then chop, and then another says chop, then mix. Okay? And and one includes an ingredient not mentioned on any other list. Do you think that you could accurately reconstruct her original recipe from this evidence? Of course you could. Of course you could. Those misspellings and abbreviations are inconsequential, as is the order of ingredients in the list, you know. Those variations all mean the same thing. The the single inverted phrase kind of stands out, this whole mix. Then chopped, but you actually can't mix something that hasn't been chopped already. So you can cover the original meaning of that fairly easily. You would then strike the extra ingredient uh, from the one that has the extra ingredient, reasoning that it's more plausible that a person would add an ingredient than twenty-five people would leave one off, right? So even if the variations were more and more diverse and and had different things going on with a, a larger amount of manuscripts, you can actually still remain relatively confident of what aunt sally's original recipe was it just with a really good degree of confidence it just takes some common sense and a little bit of time to examine where the differences are this is what textual criticism does for 500 years it's done that because here's the fact we actually have 5,700 ancient new testament manuscripts entire copies 5,700 that's a ton which has gotten us to a 99.5% accuracy of the text. Now, now that isn't to say that there aren't still a few remaining variants that are difficult to, to determine and figure out. Um, actually, one of them is in the introduction to the letter of John. Uh, actually, it's in First John, where he, he says, uh, we write this to make your joy complete. Uh, there's actually a lot of manuscripts that say, we write this to make our joy complete, because just like in the Greek, your and our just a couple letters apart, and so... But these uh, these remaining ones, actually, there's no significant doctrine or significant level of teaching that is in any way kind of at threat of being exposed or discarded or is in contention as a result. Even those who are the the biggest opponents of Christianity and have their, their hands deep into the textual criticism realm say this. This is Bart Ehrman, if you want the name. No essential Christian belief is affected by the textual variance in the manuscript traditions of the New Testament. So that's great. That's great. We actually have a lot of confidence that the text that we have, that that translators translate from, is really, 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 really close to that which was originally written down, because we have all these manuscript evidence stemming off, and we can compare them with one another to see what they actually wrote now, th- this means that there are some edits that have been made. You might not know this, but 16 verses have been dropped from the New Testament. And when we look at them we say, oh, these verses, actually, they weren't kind of added in for ill intent. They were just trying to clarify the verses around them a little bit more. But they're actually not part of the original author's thing. So 16 verses have been dropped out. If you're a footnote reader, you can find them. If you're not, well, Google it, I suppose. Okay. Um, but there are two larger pass- passages that are completely um, not part of the originals that persist in your New Testament today. Uh, the first one actually is in, at the end of the Gospel of Mark. The last 11 verses to the Gospel of Mark were uh, probably not penned by Mark because Mark's Gospel kind of ends on a cliffhanger. You just kind of have the empty tomb and it just ends. Probably for a dramatic effect but some scribes kind of came across that and were like, hold on, this thing just ends. There's more to this story and so they kind of take the details from the other Gospels and they put them at the end of Mark to kind of give you the full story all the way through the ascension of Jesus. So that's the first passage, and the second passage is this one here. This is the second passage here, which actually is a cherished passage. Um, It's been a cherished passage of the church for a long, long time, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, it's probably a cherished passage in your heart as well. Um, and so thank you for your patience as we walk through textual criticism. Now let's kind of take some steps into the passage itself. Let's read it together. We're going to start in 753. That's actually where the omission um, starts, or the, or the passage starts. That is not original to John. in 753. It starts like this. Then each one went to his house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn he went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him he sat down and began to teach them then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery making her stand in the center teacher they said to him this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery in the law of Moses in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women what do you say they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, "The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her." Then he he stooped down and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, "Woman." Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. We don't want to lose this one, do we? We don't want to lose this one, right? Like, are we really going to throw this one out? Are the translators sure this isn't part of the original? This sure seems like Jesus to us, doesn't it? This seems like Jesus. Well, let me provide you with some other things that those who wrote those quotes down from earlier er, earlier, that say that there's overwhelming and conclusive evidence against John writing this, let me share some quotes that they also wrote down. Um, Well, actually, let's actually go with the the direct evidence of why this isn't John first, okay? Okay. as we've already mentioned, it's not in those manuscripts. That's number one. Second, there's 12 uh, Greek words here that John doesn't use in the rest of his gospel. So this doesn't sound like John. Okay? This isn't John's typical vocabulary. And then third, the narrative is actually altogether interrupted. If you'll remember from last week, um, the uh, scribes and Pharisees are actually debating. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are actually debating, wait, this Jesus, we, we have to start working against this guy. We have to start, and Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus as he says, our law doesn't condemn someone without hearing them out first, does it, right? Like, we should listen to this guy, and they essentially kind of make fun of him for that statement or accuse him of being in bed with the Jesus movement himself, you know? But actually, if you skip down to the end of this passage and you start in, G- in verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will also have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. So what they've essentially done is they've taken Nicodemus's advice. They've summoned Jesus to them to have a conversation with him so that they can de- determine whether they can trust him or not. They're evaluating his testimony. And so this story really interrupts kind of that flow that we see happening in John chapter 7. And so John didn't write this with his greater gospel. Sure, we can be certain of that. But this is also what those people who wrote those quotes that saying, we definitely know that to be true. These are some quotes they also wrote down. They, they pen things like this. This fits something Jesus may have done. This story is true to the character of Jesus. This story is ancient, authentic, and appropriate for Christian reflection. This contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit. There's no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. There is little reason for doubting this event actually occurred. Those are all separate quotes. And here's the kicker of of really why they're very confident saying that. One quote goes like this. This pericope rings true. It speaks to our condition, and it can scarcely have been composed or imagined in the early church with the early church's sternness about sexual sin. You see, the early church was so strict about sexual sin that it's highly unlikely it would have made up a story that extends an overwhelming amount of mercy to someone, to anyone's sexual sin. So so while it's agreed that it wasn't written by John, it's also agreed that it probably happened. This story, and and I stand pretty convinced by that through my studies in the week, this story is likely something that happened. It's likely something that was recorded and, and passed down in oral history of the church for a couple hundred years until a scribe was... Translating or, or, or transmitting the scriptures to uh, another copy of it, and, and he was worried oh, shoot, we don't want to lose this one. We don't want to lose it. And so it gets put into the scriptures at that point. There's no ill intention just don't want to lose this. And actually throughout history, what we see in the manuscripts is very interesting. There's usually asterisks next, next to it or small notes that are meant to highlight to the reader, hey, we're unsure of the origins of this part, okay? But we don't want to lose it. We want to keep it. We want to hold on to it. There's some questionable origins here. We're going to keep transmitting it from one generation to the next, Now, if John didn't write it, and we're not sure who did, we're still kind of in a tough spot. It's difficult to hold it with the same authority as the rest of Scripture. This is why the asterisks have been put next to it and notes are put. It's difficult to hold it with the same authority as the rest of Scripture. It's difficult to look at it and say, this is the inspired word of God. It's a a real historic event, But it's difficult to look at it and say this is part of the inspired work word of God. Instead, this is a better way to think of it. We can think of it as a passage on probation. Probation. So this is an awkward analogy. I'll admit it. But sometimes workers can be put on probation, right? But they still go to work. They still contribute to the greater goal of an organization, even when they're on probation. They're just kind of stripped of their authority. They're they're still kind of under a little bit more scrutiny than other workers are. They're still kind of under a little more supervision than their co-workers are. And in a similar way, this passage, it can contribute to the general Uh, um, consensus of scripture in so much as it comes alongside what we already know to be true about Jesus Christ and submitting itself to that additional scrutiny of what the rest of the word says about who Jesus is. We can't really come to this text and and really take out of it because it's not part of the inspired word of God. We can't really take out of it something new about Jesus necessarily. It's probably a good way to put it. But it can still point to who Jesus is is that the rest of the scriptures resonate with. That's probably the the, the best way to think about it. It's corroborating what we already know to be true about him. So so let's continue then. Let's dive into this scripture a little bit um, with that understanding of it, because there's such a huge, profitable gem here. We have such an amazing and beautiful illustration of the mercy of God in this text, that it's difficult to say there's no value. There's such a clarification of what this mercy looks like that we see in other ways in the text, that we see spoken about in other parts of the scriptures, but is on a very beautiful display here, which is why it was worth passing down orally for hundreds of years and then being transmitted by writing for 1,500 years now. So... So let's roll up our sleeves and see what we can understand in this passage. Now, when we come to this passage to try to understand it, we immediately discover that we don't have a lot of our typical tools of interpretation because we don't know who wrote it because it's just its own thing and it's not attached to a greater body of work that we can determine what the purposes are. Like in John, a lot of how we interpret every passage of John is by thinking, what is John trying to do in this gospel? What is he trying to accomplish? And those greater purposes actually can provide meaning and and interpretation onto each individual passage we come to. It's difficult to do that in this instance. It's difficult to do that, which means that it's a little bit more difficult to understand some of the stranger details that are there, um, like the small details. It's difficult to know why they're there and what they're meant to communicate, like things like Jesus stooping down to write on the ground. What's that all about? Things like the older men leaving first. What's, what's going on here? Why is that part included? Or why does she call him Lord very strange. Like, does she know him already? Uh, is this just a term of respect? Or is she literally saying, like, you just saved me. You're my Lord. Like, like oh, It's really difficult to say anything beyond speculation on these kinds of questions. Um, it's hard to say things definitively there. But that's not to say that there aren't other clues of things that are going on here that we can really grasp this situation on a deep and significant level. Um, and part of the reason why <laughs> these like little quirky things and nuances might even be indication of the authenticity of this story actually because what they're doing um, is they're providing a bit uh, like a broader picture of things going on that for oral tradition kind of helps you paint a picture in your head as you're engaging it um, without providing additional detail as to what these little things mean because then you have to memorize more. So, so there's like a little bit. But these could actually be marks of authenticity that are in this text to kind of provide pictures, um, but not like lengthy explanations. So it's it, you don't have to memorize more things. Um, I see you looking at the ceiling. Sorry, Daniel. He, Awana. You know, memorization is good, but long memorization. You know, keep it short. Keep it short. You know, um, but this. So. Just because some of our interpretive tools are missing here, it doesn't mean that all of them are gone, um, and we still have methods here to understand the situation, okay? Um, so first, it says that this whole thing is a trap. It's a trap, okay? It says, the scribes and Pharisees did this to trap him. They brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So what's the trap? What's the trap here? What evidence are they looking for in order to accuse him? What is it? without using kind of the cultural and political historical tools that we have we might come to the conclusion of, of, of something like they're trying to get Jesus to approve of this woman's death so that people who are following him will see how unloving he is and desert him. But no that's actually not what trap is being set here. Um, in, in the first century uh, Israel uh, the Jews they were ruled by the Romans. The Romans and the Romans gave them some autonomy to rule themselves, so long as they paid their taxes. Okay, Uh, this is thing. This is what good empires do. Okay, autonomy to rule yourself, so long as we get that money. Okay, so so Jews ruled themselves on things like cultural norms, on things like um, social disputes, on things like land disputes, and and so you have this uh, Jewish religious really political council that exists in Jerusalem at the time called the Sanhedrin and they kind of ruled on these matters. But they were not allowed to carry out a death sentence. In order to do that they needed to petition the Roman appointed magistrates and governors which was a complicated process, very complicated process. We saw it play out in the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a lot of going to this guy and to that guy and trying to convince him that this guy needs to be killed and and then going to that guy to get his approval as well, that they couldn't do it themselves. They needed to seek approval from the Romans. The Romans didn't care about sexual sin. Not in a million years would a, a Roman magistrate say, yeah, someone is committing sexual sin, let's put them to death. So so the trap being set for Jesus actually goes like this. Okay, this guy seems to be coming forward forward as the Messiah, as the coming king who will lead the people in complete righteousness and upholding the Mosaic law once again, so let's force him to choose between issuing a death sentence and carrying it out, and then the Roman authorities will come and Arrest him and probably kill him. Or he won't do that, and the people will truly see that he's not, in fact, the Messiah. He's not their hope for Messiah. And so they'll turn on him, and then we can deal with him how we want to deal with him. So that's the trap. Jesus is put between making beef with the Romans or disheartening his followers. That's what's going on here. Okay, this is the trap that he's in. Now, who is this woman? Who is this woman? We can actually find a good deal about her situation, her circumstance, based on this reference to the law of Moses. To the law of Moses. Uh, look in verse four. Teacher, they said to him, this one woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Commanded us to stone such women. Women. Now, this is a bit heavy. Capital punishment, this is a huge issue. But this story is just a greater piece of a, a greater New Testament theology and methodology that, that while things like adultery, stealing, lying, and idolatry are still viewed as sin into the New Testament, capital punishment is no longer permitted, okay, so I just wanted to say that in case, like, your heart is racing, like, oh man, what does this mean, okay, I just want to say that, like, this is part of a greater witness of New Testament theology, which is uh, against capital punishment in these instances, All right, Um, but here we have this uh, reference to Mosaic law, capital punishment, but the method attached to it, and there's there's only a few places that talk about attaching capital punishment to adultery, and only one that speaks of stoning, It's in Deuteronomy chapter 22, and it's with regard to a very specific circumstance of adultery. It's the adultery that takes place with a woman who's betrothed to be married betrothed to be married so, so, so this mention of stoning here means it's very likely that, that this woman who was betrothed to be married uh, perhaps she was found to be in a one off encounter or a, an existing relationship with a, a man who she was not married to other than her betrothed husband it's likely it was still ongoing if it was in fact a relationship despite her betrothed status So here we have a woman, perhaps a teenager, whose parents, in agreement with another family, have have betrothed her to be wed. She likely didn't have much input into that decision, and she's discovered to be sleeping with another man. This isn't just some random woman caught sleeping around. This is a very specific instance of a young woman betrothed, but not being faithful. Now, The the discovery of this could have been on that very day, but it also could have been days in the past, weeks of this, weeks in the past, months in the past, perhaps even years in the past. And when it came to light, the wedding was canceled, and this woman was known to be an adulterer ever since. This is something that kind of didn't leave your rap sheet in Jerusalem. We really don't know. We just have to speculate because this is more of a premeditated trap, I kind of lean this way, that this, this, like this adultery part of it probably happened a while ago and this wedding's been canceled and she's just kind of a known adulterer moving forward. She's not like caught in the act that night and brought to Jesus. It's just because there's this premeditated notion of what the Pharisees are up to. It's almost like they, they think of the plan and like, okay, who do we know that's an adulterer? Let's go get them and bring them to Jesus. But in any instance, this is kind of the scenario or the circumstances that we're in with regards to this woman. Once the trap was set, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He stooped. He stooped down, second part of verse six. Jesus stooped down and started riding on the ground with his finger. Where did he stoop from? Well, he was sitting up in verse two. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach him. And this is something we have to know about the culture of the time. They didn't stand and teach and preach like I'm doing right now with you. They actually, so there's other points in the gospel. You see, Jesus goes into the synagogue, he sits down to teach. He goes into the temple, he sits down to teach. What's really interesting also is, is when he gets on a boat and the crowds are on the shores, even there it says he sat down and taught opposite to our day there's actually more authority to kind of sit down and teach an audience in first century Jerusalem that's actually a position of authority and so what does Jesus do he gets out of it steps out of this position of authority that he was in as teaching perhaps there's a scroll in front of him steps out of it and he stoops down his first instinct when sin comes is to humble himself. Make himself vulnerable even. He gets lower than everybody. Does this sound like Jesus to you? Oh, absolutely it is. Jesus humbles himself in light of her sin and in light of the scenario here. He humbles himself physically. And he's humbled himself and they keep badgering him They persisted in questioning him, it says in verse 7. They persisted in it, and then he responded. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. What a statement. It's a statement that's resonated throughout history, even to today. It's an argument ender. It's a mic drop, you call it. It cuts to the heart of anybody with double standards. It cuts to the heart of anybody with hypocrisy. It's, it's a conversation ender. It's an argument under. Boom, over. Now, he doesn't defend her. With this statement, Jesus acknowledges her guilt. He, he acknowledges both the guilt and that the punishment is death. And so one can't make the case that Jesus disregards the law, but by insisting on the innocence of the executioners, he actually disarms them as well. You leave. You leave. If you run to Jesus to point at someone else's sin and complain about it, don't be surprised to be confronted with your own. This is, this is what Christ does. This is who the Christ is. This is, goes hand in hand with how Jesus taught on judgment. This is in Matthew 7. We'll throw it on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And for this reason, it's likely that some of the people who brought this woman forward that was caught in adultery I mean, in the law of Moses, both man and the woman were actually to be brought forward and stoned to death. But they just bring the woman, likely because adultery is a little more tolerated among men, first century. By the same standard which with you judge others, you will be judged and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take out the beam of wood, take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Where they will trample them under your, their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Very interesting. Jesus, does this sound like Jesus? Oh, this is Jesus through and through. This is Jesus through and through. He's always cutting through hypocrisy. He's always cutting through double standards. It's no surprise to see him do it in this way. And because he did it in this way, we have this beautiful statement that has reverberated throughout history and 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 is in present in most people's mind even if they're not a christian let you be the one to cast the first stone it's everywhere okay let's keep moving now it it probably took a good amount of time for this situation to to de-escalate and as it does a new problem emerges there is someone standing here without sin That slowly becomes more and more evident to us as we sit in the passage. Someone is standing here who could throw a stone. The perfect Jesus Christ. Is he going to pick up a rock? What's going to happen? Verse 10. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. This is probably the central reason that the scribes said we need to place this in the book of John. Does this statement, "Neither do I condemn you," remind you of any other statement in the book of John? Anything pops? Free camp cup. Free camp cup. If you call it out, free camp cup. Anybody? We've already gone through any other statement of John. John three sixteen through seventeen. Should have just guessed it. I mean, that's that's like number one guess. John three sixteen. John 3, 16 through 17 goes like this. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. How dare they ask the Messiah to play judge, jury, executioner. Purpose of the son is to set the oppressed free. This is what the purpose of the Christ is. This is an encounter where God's mercy is on full display. Mercy is a little bit different from grace. I wanna distinguish it a bit for you and it, it's gonna become really uh, apparent as to how this helps us actually follow Jesus here in a second. Mercy and grace are not the same thing. Sometimes we can conflate them in our minds, but mercy always comes to us. God's mercy always comes to us before God's grace comes to us. God's mercy comes before God's grace. God's mercy is rescinding the consequences we deserve. God's mercy is rescinding the consequences we deserve. She deserves death. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. I rescind the consequence that you deserve. God's grace is extending us gifts we don't deserve, okay? God's grace is extending us gifts we don't deserve, the pardon of mercy comes before the empowerment and gifts of grace. You put it like that. The pardon of mercy comes before the empowerment and gifts of grace. And this is a picture of, of mercy, not grace. Now, the life of following Jesus includes both mercy and grace, and And I suppose even you could make the statement of, you know, isn't mercy just kind of like part of grace? Like, isn't mercy like one of those gifts that we don't deserve, sure, 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 semantics. But I wanna separate them out for for you for a little bit because there's something different in how we conceptualize of them, which impacts how we lean into our relationship with God. Because we, we definitely want to highlight the incredible gifts of God throughout our life, and that's awesome, and that's great, and that's good. That's needed in the world. But, but what does leaning into mercy mean? It means leaning into the state of our crooked and broken hearts. You see, with grace, we kind of talk about what God has done. With mercy, we talk about what we have done. We start with where we fall short. We, we start with how, like, the consequence of our rebellions before God actually are death, death. It means admitting that our rebellion to his kingdom means the king is justified in exiling us out of it. That's what it means. But experiencing mercy is sitting in that throne room where the king is and and hearing him say, neither do I condemn you in that moment when your rebellion is on display and and in your mind and, and you have a fresh glimpse of it. This is what you deserve but I'm not gonna do that. Have you heard God say that to you? It's such a crucial part of of what it means to be a Christian. It's, It's something that we don't just hear once and become a Christian, but it's something that's, we need a fresh experience of time and time and time again throughout the course of our lives because it actually gives us a deeper glimpse of the gap that Jesus Christ actually came to fill. Jesus came to take us from complete death to complete life. Not a little death to complete life. Not a little bit of rebellion to complete life. Not a little bit of disobedience to complete. Complete death, complete rebellion to complete life. This is what Jesus came to do. I really hope that you lean into the consideration of mercy time and time again in your life. It's such a crucial thing. Without a fresh experience of mercy in our life, a continual, like a continual spring of mercy that we, we dip into and drink from over the course of our lives, without that, what ends up happen, happening is following Jesus, being a, like listening to him and obeying him either becomes impossible or, or just self-righteous. Like, if we were preaching an entire sermon and we didn't have to talk about textual criticism for the first half, that's what we'd unpack at length. Like, like, mercy without it, what we do, our obedience actually can't be empowered by much. And if we try to white-knuckle it, it's just to kind of look good in front of others. That's, so write that down. Talk about that in your cohorts, I suppose. Um, and so after diffusing... The condemnation here is what Jesus does. Um, After mercifully rescinding the judgment, Jesus says, go. And from now on, sin no more. Or or if, if you're still in relationship with sexual relations outside of marriage, end it. This highlights what Jesus frequently said. An ongoing relationship with Him was actually to look like that—that that there is this obedience that flows from mercy, that there is the love of God showing up in mercy and changing someone. She responds, "Lord," she responds, "Lord," did this love change her? Later in John eight, it says this actually in eight thirty one: If you continue in My Word, another way of saying if you listen to Me, then you are really My disciples. You really have encountered my love and and discovered a love for me. And then in John 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So don't misunderstand. We can often misunderstand the dance between love and obedience. these passages, these passages and other light, others like them in the New Testament, um, it's not that law, God's love is conditional on our obedience, but that rather that our obedience stems from our love that has been produced by his love that makes sense. So we have this Jesus showing up and and showing incredible love towards this woman. Now she has the opportunity to to gain an affection for him that actually is going to begin to empower her to live her life completely differently. Whoever has been forgiven much loves much. That's from Luke chapter 7. So so as we encounter the, the mercy and forgiveness of Christ, we actually begin to encounter that which will inspire us to follow him. Love springs up in our And when you love someone, you listen to them. And so the more that we grasp the mercy of Christ, the more you will see yourself forgiven of, the more you will see, and the more that you see yourself forgiven of, the more that you will experience love for Christ, and the more you come to love Christ, the more you obey Christ, at least want to obey Christ. And so this woman and someone who he's extended mercy mercy to hopefully has found this new love for him. And it's even more so for us because after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts which empowers this love all the more to come alongside this incredible way that we can encounter Jesus' mercy which renews our mind of who this Savior much, must be and the Spirit comes alongside that and gives us a drive to live a transformed life of following Jesus. And so when we encounter others, this is the question, what do we do when we encounter others that don't obey Jesus? Well, we do what, we, what, what he did. We don't condemn them and we don't condone their sin. Why? In the hopes that they encounter his mercy. Because if they do, there's a chance for their affections to be garnered for this Christ, for their love to go deep. And that's the only thing that can actually transform someone. Now this is slightly different than the modern like, notion and concept of, of love the sinner, hate the sin. Have you heard this before? Uh, some people think it's a Bible verse. it is not. It's not a Bible verse. But it actually probably comes from an inter- interpreting this very passage, is where probably this phrase originated from. But I find this phrase to be very theologically cringy, maybe. It's probably the best way to put it. Why? Because it actually, I think, tends to sidestep the thrust of transformative mercy. Like, like, let's stick with what Jesus was actually doing here. His love and his hatred actually aren't the focus of this passage at all. Only his actions of not condemning and not condoning. This is the sweet middle spot that Jesus operated in throughout his ministry, where he was hanging out with those who were known as sinners in society. And they were changing their lives as a result. He wasn't condemning them, wasn't condoning what they were doing either. Even when Jesus is getting into it with his Jewish adversaries, this is in Matthew 23, when Jesus is the most upset with people, the Jewish leaders, he's going into them hard. He's not condoning their hypocrisy. He is not condoning their double standards. He is not condoning uh, condoning their sins of partiality, of pride. uh, He's not condoning it, but immediately He follows it up with perhaps the most loving, nurturing, and merciful analogy in the entire New Testament. Oh, how I wish I could gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Jesus' heart of mercy is the same heart of mercy in this instance that we find in that passage, that we find on the cross, as people look up to the cross at him and they're ridiculing him and making fun of him It says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We need these fresh experiences of mercy in our lives. We need these fresh experiences of mercy. There's there's only one way for us to be able to live in that space of not condemning and not condoning, and it's for us to realize that we have been extended those same two attitudes of Christ, that we're only here because of those attitudes, Christ, that we have hope in life because of those attitudes of Christ. We need to constantly dip into the spring of the mercy of God in order to find that attitude for this world that so desperately needs it. And so that's our text, a text of mercy. Like we talked about, not part of the inspired word of God, not part of the canon of scripture per se, And so in a sense, you can argue that it shouldn't be here. You can make that argument. But in a strange way, then, its existence embodies God's mercy. Despite its questionable origins, it's not been struck completely from the record. Instead, it's been allowed to live and continue on like you and me so that I can continue to point to the Christ, make his name great, and hopefully glorify him even. I pray it's done at least that for you. And I hope that even its very existence here might even be a glimpse of the mercy that God has extended to you in allowing you to continue inside step death, proclaim the name of Christ in this world, and hopefully help other people catch a deeper glimpse of who he is. It's like the meta of this passage. It's a, it's a text of mercy, and it points to the Lord of mercy. It's beautiful. Hopefully it helps us lean into the purpose for which we were created as well. Let's pray. Father God, i um, as we come to, to you and as we encounter your mercy and we look at it upon the cross, Father, we praise you for how you decided not just to not give the penalty to us, but in that decision, it meant that you were going to take the penalty upon yourself on the cross. And so, Lord God, right now, we, we praise you for, for that decision. That decision did not come lightly. It was not just a, 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 a striking through of our offense, but it was a picking up of the penalty that needed to be paid. We thank you for, for doing that for us on the cross. I thank you for my friends here today. For those who are, are new to, to considering you, God, I ask that this consideration would go deep into their souls, that they would, uh, you would give them uh, friends this week to continue to chew on it with, to ask questions about to continue their consideration, God. God, I ask for those who um, are your followers and in your people that you would continue to help to bring them into deeper consideration of your mercy so that they can encounter this deep, profound gap that you have bridged in bringing us from complete death to complete life. Lord, we praise that you have done this. and, And Lord, would you even in this time now give us an experience of that gap. We Thank you for doing it. We long to... Uh, to to see you one day and thank you in person. But for now, let our praises be enough for you. Amen. Amen. Uh, Each week we we look and come to the table where we uh, get to look at uh, that mercy, that, that penalty that was picked up. Because mercy was extended to us, it had to be picked up somewhere else and it was by Jesus on the cross. Um, and so the way that you'll do that is at any point during these next three songs you can come up and, and rip off a piece of the bread that represents Christ's body broken for you you can dip it in the cup which represents Christ's blood poured out for you and eat it as a way of remembering and celebrating uh, his mercy in, in your life through the cross um, and, and how he has uh, extended it to you through his spirit even because of the resurrection and ascension. then um, you can return your seat return to your seat we have some single servers, single serving ones available